Hey listeners, welcome to Death Walks With Us. My name is Angela and I will be the host of this true crime podcast. In this series, we will try to understand human behavior by exploring some of the most bizarre and horrific murders. I will be exploring many cases involving domestic violence and obsessions. My goal is to pass along knowledge that could potentially help someone recognize potentially violent situations and to survive. My first case involves the tragic murder of Angela Shannon Wilder at the hands of a violent narcissist who violently took her life just to make life easier. Besides news reports and the few court documents I could find, a lot of my information comes from an episode of Dateline and C.J. Wynn's book, Wilder Intentions, Love, Lies, and Murder in North Dakota. So on with the case. Hello by Adele topped the charts on the morning of Friday the 13th, 2015. And this murder begins about 24 hours before the coordinated terrorist attacks on Paris that left about 130 dead. In Manette, North Dakota, at 10 p.m. on November 12th, Angela Wilder dropped her fiancé, Christopher Jackson, off at Walmart for his overnight shift, where she then went home to try and get some sleep. Christopher had taken the full-time overnight shift so that Angela could focus on school. At about 11 p.m., she started texting Christopher that she felt scared because she thought she heard someone outside, and it sounded like they were trying the doorknob. Christopher was not worried, as they lived in a relatively safe neighborhood. They lived right across the street from an elementary school and next door to a Lutheran church. Christopher pretty much brushed brushed off her concerns because she did get anxious about being home alone when he worked and he wasn't concerned as she always locked up, even going so far as locking herself in her bedroom. So he reasoned with her that he would call her on his breaks. Christopher spoke with her on his 12.08 a.m. break and 2.10 a.m. lunch break, but on his last break at 5.08 a.m., She did not answer, so he assumed she just had finally fallen asleep. She had been exhausted and hadn't been getting much sleep. She was going to nursing school at Minot State University, had a toddler, and recently discovered she was pregnant again for at least the fifth time, having had at least one miscarriage and three successful pregnancies. This night, Angela was home with just her two-year-old toddler. The oldest two were at their father's apartment for his week with them. Christopher wasn't concerned with her not answering him, as he thought she would be there at 7 a.m. to pick him up. At 7 a.m., Angela was nowhere to be seen, and Christopher took a taxi home thinking she had been that exhausted and figured it would be something he could tease her about. When Christopher arrived home, he realized something was not right. The car was cold, and then he noticed the back door was open and it looked damaged. He started to enter, and when Angela nor their child responded to him, he immediately backed out and called 911 at about 7.14 a.m. 
Officers nearby arrived at the scene and entered once backup arrived. Their main focus was on locating the two-year-old and bringing him to safety. They checked the unlocked bedrooms, found the sleeping child, and brought him out to his father, where they asked permission to break down the one locked door. Christopher immediately gives it to them, and when they break it down, they see a bloody mess, and then they see the body on the floor. She would be identified as Angela Shannon Wilder. This had been a vicious attack. Her life ended here, but her death sentence had begun in Alabama. Angela, spelt A-N-G-I-L-A, was born in San Diego on September 30, 1985, to Linda and Tony Small. She had been born 13 months after their first born daughter, Crystal. According to Crystal, while they were young, they had become close like twins. Crystal was held back a year in school, so the two enjoyed many of the milestones together. Both Angela's parents were in the military and they moved around until they divorced in 1986. That's when Linda met Leon Russ Hollenbeck in 1988. For some reason, Linda had cut Tony out of their lives, and when she met Russ, he stepped up to be a parent. He even waited to the mid-90s when he thought the girls were old enough to give him permission before he asked Linda to marry him. I guess he never adopted them, but they considered him to be their dad, and he is listed on Angela's obituary as her father. They eventually settled in Phoenix City, Alabama, located 10 miles away from one of the largest army bases in the world, Fort Benning. Angela was considered the brains of the two sisters and she worked hard as she had a life goal of becoming a doctor. She constantly made the honor roll and became a member of ROTC, Reserve Officers Training Corps. According to Wynne, Angela had become a very beautiful young lady, and that beauty made other girls jealous of her, causing Angela to develop a sharp tongue to get out of situations. The family had a strong Mormon faith, and that faith would influence Angela as she was active in the church. The Mormon faith has very strict rules when it comes to certain things, and Angela obeyed by those in high school. No drinking, no smoking, no drugs, no coffee, and dates had to be double dates with other members of the church. Angela had a lot of offers for dates, but was very picky and only wanted to date boys who were just as motivated as her, except for when it came to Christopher Jackson, her future fiancé. Christopher was a big guy, but he was one of those big teddy bear kind of guys. Uh, starting in middle school, their romance was one of those off-and-on things till Angela went away to college. It was because of Christopher's lack of motivation that Angela would break it off with him, but he loved her and he would wait for her. Because of Angela's hard work, she was able to obtain a scholarship with the Army and went to the University of Alabama. It was while at college that Angela met her first husband. Just a little side note, 
For some people in Angela's story, I'm not going to say their names. I'm just going to refer to them in relation to Angela, and he will be known as first husband. I'm not going to use fake names. I don't really like it as it can be confusing. So to protect some people's privacy, these people will be referred to as how they are related to the story. So back to Angela. While at college, she met her first husband and they began dating. It was not that serious until she found herself pregnant. Both had come from strict religious backgrounds, so they married, but not before they both lost their scholarships. This was a strict scholarship and people were not allowed to marry nor get pregnant. Winners of this scholarship had to focus on their studies in order to be able to keep their scholarships. They were allowed to finish out the semester, but that was it. They both could not afford college and had to drop out. After the birth of Angela's daughter on September 9, 2004, they moved to New York where the first husband had family. Things were not good for the couple. It may have been an abusive relationship as Angela claimed to have called the cops on him a couple of times. After two years, the marriage ended and Angela moved back to Alabama with her daughter that her first husband would soon sign over his rights as he had no interest in the child. After moving back to Alabama, Angela became acquainted with some former schoolmates, one a woman that she had not been friends with in school, but soon became best friends with, and also Richie Edwin Wilder Jr., who Wynne says was a childhood friend, but according to Dateline, these two had been bestest friends when younger. Who knows which one's more accurate, but the point is they both knew each other from childhood. Which makes me wonder if he had known Christopher from a young age as well. The sources that I had read did not mention if those two knew each other in childhood. Anyways, there is conflicting information on Richie's upbringing. In Wynne's book, she was not able to find any evidence to match what he said and people gave different stories on him but he was known for telling tales and embellishing his stories. What is known was he was active in the Mormon church. According to Wynne, Angela had paid him little attention until she came home from college and saw he had blossomed into appearing to be a fine, young, motivated man. This is the point in Angela's life where people would probably like to ask the what if questions, it can cause distress trying to think of what life would have been like if things had been different. When Angela moved back, she did reconnect with Christopher, but at this point, he still lacked motivation. He did not finish high school, had no job, and lived in his mother's basement. Honestly, I see nothing wrong with Christopher's lifestyle. He was young. It can be hard trying to figure out what you want out of life, but Angela knew what she wanted, and she knew what she wanted in a mate to help her attain her life goals. But because Christopher was not ready, Angela decided on Richie, even though she really did love Christopher. 
Most young men do not want to date young women who have children, but Richie did not mind and treated Angela's daughter like she was his. Everyone was happy for Angela, except for her new best friend, who thought Richie was controlling and abusive. Their meetups had become less and less frequent, and Angela seemed more guarded on what she said. Plus, her new best friend was seeing strange bruising on Angela. But she was happy for Angela when she announced she had become engaged to Richie. In January 2009, Angela and Richie got married in the Mormon faith. They did a sealing ceremony that married them together for all eternity in the Mormon faith. After the wedding, Richie adopted Angela's daughter. After the wedding, Richie announced he was joining the military and they moved to Minot, North Dakota. Minot, North Dakota traces its beginning to a railroad camp that set up for the winter in 1887 and became known as the Magic City because like magic, the city grew fast and now is home to the North Dakota State Fair. Shortly after moving into their base home in June 2010, they discovered Angela was pregnant. So as Richie already had abusive tendencies, I'm going to talk about some of abuser's MO for listeners to notice the signs. Abusers like to isolate their victims and moving Angela away from her family to North Dakota cut off her support system. It may not have been intentional, but it happened and may have escalated the abuse that was to come. Narcissistic abusers also become very jealous of the babies their victims carry. When women become pregnant, they tend to focus a lot on them growing a human being and that attention can cause abusers to lash out. They feel entitled to her attention and it should be focused on them only. On the other hand, some abusers like to impregnate to keep the women dependent on them and under their control. On the website dangerassessment.org is a checklist that many professionals use to determine a woman's safety the likelihood of being killed by her abuser. One of the risk factors is, has he harmed you while pregnant? Once in the Air Force, Richie began to change. The military does change people, many for the better, but for some, they change for the worse. Richie is a narcissist, and the military would have given him a sense of power that he did not have. I understand the sacrifice these people give when they join the military, but for some, that power gets into their head and they have an inflated sense of self, and Richie was one of them. It also does not help that the military prompts a hyper-masculinity type of culture and socialization is structured to promote this, even degrading feminine aspects to these hyper-masculine qualities to make them killing machines. Richie had changed and he became cruel to Angela about her weight. She was pregnant. Women gain weight because they are growing a fetus inside them. They need to gain weight for that fetus to become a baby and have a chance of survival. But it was not just the weight. When they joined another LDS church, Richie would only let Angela attend with him if her tear met his approval so that she would be good enough 
for him to be seen with. Richie also began to mock Angela's family. This is a classic abuser move to further drive a wedge in between their victims and their support systems. What happened was, in December 2010, Angela's mother, Linda, out of nowhere served Russ divorce papers. No matter what age, divorce can devastate their children, even adult children. But as it turned out, Linda was having an affair, and once the divorce was final, she married her lover, April. Linda had been a closeted lesbian. Her faith denied her the chance to be who she was, and Angela struggled with it because her faith defines sexual relations to be only between a man and woman in marriage. This was the law of chastity. Though, as we have learned, Angela herself did not practice that belief, but it still damaged their relationship, as Linda's daughters thought she had been cold-hearted to Russ. They loved Russ. But it doesn't matter. Richie had no right to be mean to Angela over Linda's sexual choices. Angela had her eldest son on March 15th, 2011. Angela would claim that Richie was physically abusive to her, and with what is to come, I'm going to state, I believe everything about her claims of abuse. She claimed that Richie would restrain her and prevent her from leaving the room. He would hold her by her neck against the wall. He would put her in a chokehold, but not to restrict her breathing, and he would tell her he was going to kill her by using a shovel and two bags of lye. Just based on the information so far in this book, according to the danger assessment, Angela was in extreme danger at the highest level. But even with the physical abuse, Angela was not the one to file for divorce. Richie was. He claimed that Angela had been physically abusive to her daughter since they got married. He claimed he did not report it because he was afraid Angela would cancel adoption. Richie also claimed that after coming home from basic training, Angela was still her paranoid and crazy self. She hadn't adjusted well and began to accuse him of cheating. This is another classic abuser move. When suspicion falls on them, they just claim their victim is mentally ill, call them crazy, any to thing to divert attention away from themselves and undermine their victim's reality. It's called gaslighting. Richie claimed Angela had stopped being physically abusive to their daughter, but had been verbally abusive and was threatening the child that she was going to hold her back a grade because she was stupid. I don't believe Angela was doing this at all. Richie says she then started hitting the child again and he could not take it and reported her to his first sergeant, James. This is manipulation. It's like a power move. You cannot report me, they will believe me because I reported you first kind of move. It is setting the stage for the, for the abuser to be believed over the victim. It's pure manipulation. In other words, because he made the first move, he's saying, no one will believe you if you ever tell what I'm doing to you. In Angela's case, they believed Richie. The military forced her off base with a no contact order, forcing her out of her children's lives, and worse, social services got involved. But this was an allegation of abuse, and they do need to be involved when abuse 
is when there's abuse allocations. Angela tried to convince the military officials she was the victim, not Richie, but they did not believe her. They believed Richie was the victim. Sergeant James even wrote in an affidavit that she was a lying, hysterical woman. Mm. To see her kids again, Angela had to do whatever the military and social services required of her, and she did. She did the counseling and medication that Richie said she needed for her, quote, anger issues. This is a common theme with Richie. It's not him. Everyone else has mental issues that they need to work on. And then Richie requested that everything be dropped and asked Angela to move back in with him. Though later, he would claim she begged him and he decided to give her another chance. It did not last long, and by January 2012, he was filing divorce again, saying Angela attacked him. So, just before Christmas, he claims Angela thought he was cheating on him with an ex and she would not believe him that he was not. He claims that she asked if she could slap him and he agreed, but she got out of control and he had to choke her out. On December 26, he claimed that Angela was threatening him that she was going to call the police and take the children away from him. I believe that she probably did, but he says he tried to defuse it by hugging her and she tried to attack him and he had no choice but her in a chokehold and accidentally caused her to pass out. He tried to wake her by slapping her face until she woke up and claimed she would not let him call an ambulance as it was an accident. He also claimed in the divorce proceedings that Angela stopped going to counseling and stopped taking her medication. Plus, she had begun to threaten suicide and told him how she planned on doing it. Unlike the first time he filed for divorce, Angela got a chance to speak, and she countered his accusations with what was probably closer to the truth. Angela had good reason to suspect he was cheating. She had overheard him on the phone telling someone, I love you, and when she confronted him about it, he was physical with her and blamed her medication. He flushed her medication and went to her counselor and told them it changed Angela's mood at night. Angela had also found another cell phone. Richie gave the lame excuse in the divorce proceedings that he had a prepaid cell phone to boost his credit score. I'm sorry, I do not think a prepaid cell phone will boost your credit score. My prepaid cell phone never boosted my credit score, but my contract cell phone did. I had that for like six to eight years and it really helped my credit score, but it was too expensive and I started doing prepaid and it does zero for my score. It did nothing. Oh, and then the woman he was talking to, he tried to tell Angela that he was only trying to make her fall in love with him so he could hurt her to hurt her for giving him an STD and putting him in debt. I don't think she believed him because she did not want to be around him and was angry with him for days. There was a physical alteration between them. It was not just him just choking her. He left bruises all over her face from hitting her. And she took photos and had photo proof of that. On December 26, she claimed he had been trying to make up with her. And when he asked for a hug, she went in for it and he attacked her, choked her out like he said. But when Richie said he was going to call an ambulance and the cops on himself, she talked him out of it. Many survivors of DV 
E will tell you how they refuse to get medical treatment or allow police intervention. It's about protecting the abusers. Many survivors believed their abusers that it was their fault for being beat. Abuse is highly psychological damaging to survivors. The trauma can make it hard to explain their actions. Now I'm only going in depth about some details because I think it's so vital to understand the manipulation and lies that abusers will tell on their victims. Because they're not just manipulating their victims, they're manipulating everybody in their lives. But it's also more of a power thing so that they can control their victims more because everybody will believe the abuser. And that's what happened in Angela's story. But there is so much more to all these stories and you really should read Wynn's book to get a better understanding of all this manipulation and lies because none of his stories will add up. And he lies to different people involved, not just Angela, but other officials. Anyways, on January 4th, 2012, Richie once again tells his military supervisor that Angela was abusive. He, this supervisor notifies his Sergeant James as he was involved in the first incident and knew them. This time, though, he spoke to Angela, who told him that she was going to get Richie kicked out of the military. Why am I mentioning this? Is because I feel Sergeant James his response is important to understand military culture when it comes to abuse. He wrote, the first words out of her mouth were, I'm going to get him kicked out of the Air Force. What kind of person, as opposed to helping her family succeed, would get so hateful and antagonistic right off the bat? Hmm, maybe someone who is abused and cannot take it anymore? Was he seriously implying that a woman needs to keep her mouth shut and put up with abuse to help her family succeed? How is abuse even succeeding? How does that help a family? Sergeant James wrote this in affidavits, legal documents. <sighs> James had to get social services involved because there was violence in the house with children. Richie moved into the base dorms and this time Angela was allowed to stay in the house. Angela complained about James to his higher ups and he became resentful because he thought it was he was helping Angela by him and his wife taking in her children so they did not end up in foster care. This is what he wrote about that. I have done nothing but try to ensure that Richie is able to do his job. By helping out Angela, I was helping Richie. It makes no sense that I would not do everything in my power to help her out because it ultimately aided Richie. He goes on to write that he hopes she finds happiness, but I know this isn't going to be when she's full of lies and deceit. He wrote nothing about Richie's lies, but that Richie had come clean about the lies, but it still had been all lies, and it was all Angela's fault. Angela had photo proof of the abuse, but James still was on Richie's side and believing Angela was lying. But really, I guess Sergeant James' opinion is irrelevant, because in the end, 
the military convicted Richie of domestic violence, and he got kicked out of the Air Force for it. Other officials made it known they did not believe Angela and felt that Richie should not have been punished so harshly for defending himself and for not fleeing a, quote, manipulative, untrustworthy wife. Hmm. The problem here is that when everyone supports an abuser, he will escalate. They are just reinforcing to him that he is justified, and he will use that against his victim, and she will begin to believe that no one will believe her. This is why women stay. This is why men continue to abuse. Stop believing them. They are masterful manipulators. They are lying to you. We live in a culture that would rather believe she is lying than believe that he could be that violent behind closed doors. The vast majority of the time, she is telling the truth. Ask yourself, why do you not believe her? Maybe he has pushed her so far she seems mentally unsound while he does not. You do not know what goes on behind closed doors. People's public face is not their home face. Ah, I'm sorry about that. Anyways, in May 2012, the divorce was finalized, but it did not end Richie's need to control Angela and the situation. They legally had two children together. Richie had adopted her daughter, so he had a legal right to her and thus begins their custody battles, which got so fierce they were only allowed to communicate through emails so that there would be a record of their exchanges. The custody agreement was they got the children each for one week. The exchange taken place in public at 1 p.m. on Sunday and neither was allowed to leave the state at all with the children, meaning Angela could not take the children to Alabama where she had family and wanted to go back to. Even entering new relationships did not end the hostilities. By November 2015, Richie had married a woman named Cynthia Louise Becker, and they had a two-year-old daughter together. But I'm only going to refer to her as Cynthia's daughter. Angela, at this time, was engaged to Christopher, and they had had a child together, who I'm going to refer to as Christopher's son. I'm not using the children's name, and this is to distinguish them from Angela and Richie's mutual children. Before we go back to the day Angela was discovered murdered in her home, I want to state that at one point her sister Crystal says that Angela called her frantically. She had woken up and Richie was sitting on her couch and said to her, see, I can get to you anytime I want. Now back to the day of her murder. The police had noticed nothing appeared to be disturbed when they arrived on the scene. And as nothing appeared to be stolen, it seemed this was not a robbery gone wrong, but someone who knew Angela and wanted her dead. Angela had been stabbed first in the back of the head, most likely while she slept. Her attacker continued to repeatedly stab her while she fought. She ended up on the floor during this attack, and she was stabbed for a total of 44 times. The question of who did not take long to figure out. But being a police investigation into the murder of a woman, they need to look at the significant other first. Research has shown that whereas men are more likely to be murdered by strangers, women are more likely to die at the hands of someone they know.
With those statistics, please need to examine everyone in a woman's life, especially the current partner. Angela herself would help the investigation as she had fought hard to live. She had defensive marks on her hands. Gashes on her hands would indicate that she probably held them up to deflect the knife, and her fingernails were all broken, which meant she could have scratched whoever attacked her, and they would discover there was DNA under her nails of her attacker. The fatal wound could have been to Angela's juggler vein, which would have caused her to bleed out in minutes, meaning there would have been a lot of blood. But there was also a few stab wounds to the chest that could have been fatal as well, as they seemed to be aiming for her heart. Two potential fatal wounds pierced her lung, and one cut her axillary artery vein. So of course, going into the investigation, Christopher would be a suspect. The police would not have been doing their job if they did not investigate him. But it was super easy to clear him, and this will be important for later, which I will discuss it later. There had been suspicion on Christopher as he did not go into the house. He did what you're supposed to do, call the police first when you see your door kicked in. But because his child was inside, everyone did not think it was what one would do. And because he did not go in, it was suspicious. But Christopher was very consistent on his version of events. Christopher does admit that Angela had a few times been physical with him, but it was nothing that was concerning to him. It was just some pushing or slight hitting to the chest. He was way bigger than she was. To me, it is concerning. There should be no hint in any relationship, but from a survivor's perspective, it may be how she learned to defend herself in relationships. Some abuse survivors hit first as a defense strategy, and they should seek counseling for it. it is not healthy. DV organizations can help a, a survivor find counseling. Also, I want to note, Christopher admitted sometimes he would provoke Angela because he knew she could not harm him. That's immature. But sometimes in arguments, people do provoke their partners. A few words about Christopher that are very relevant. Christopher and Angela reconnected on one of her trips down to Alabama, and during that week, she became pregnant, and when they learned of it weeks later, he moved up to North, North Dakota to be with her. They started their life together. You can say Christopher was somewhat dependent on Angela. He did not drive. He had never had a driver's license, and as he did not have any friends, he pretty much did not go anywhere without Angela. So much so he did not even have a key to their house because she had one and he was always with her because of how upset Richie would make Angela on their child exchanges Christopher started doing it for her and you guess it Richie kept his mouth shut and never said anything to the much bigger Christopher oh and Christopher did pass a polygraph test take that as you want to <clears throat> just about everyone in Angela's life <clears throat> sorry, started pointing their fingers at Richie. Some did not want to believe he could be capable, but as the police believed it was someone she knew, her family member said Richie would be the only one that they could think of in her life that could have done it. I don't blame them for wanting to believe it was a stranger who did it. No one wants to believe that someone they know could be capable of harming them, especially when they let that person into their lives. So Richie did agree to come in for questioning. 
His demeanor was weird and bizarre. He spoke really fast and rambled, did not speak clearly. He told the police he knew something was going on and he thought it was just Angela being dramatic and causing issues. Every chance he gets, he has to paint her as negatively as he can, constantly saying what a horrible person she is. This is typical of abusers. They want to convince others that their victims are the bad ones. It serves multiple purposes. One, being to discredit them and to justify the abuse. In the interview, Richie claimed she had borderline personality disorder and that was social services who had tested her, but the police later could find no evidence of that. That is the kind of typical of Richie. He just always has to question her mental status and just kind of like paint her as a mentally unstable person. Richie also discussed how the day before Angela's murder, he helped his daughter use logic to see through Angela's lies. Supposedly, the daughter had come to him about feeling like she had to choose sides. This is what he claims. He said that the daughter brought it up because Angela told her that she felt that Cynthia was stalking her when she went to work. The logic was that they both had the same work schedule, so Cynthia could not be stalking Angela. This is kind of a weird thing to bring up in the interview, as the police will discover that it had been some time since Angela had quit that job. It makes you wonder if he was trying to explain something that might come up in the investigation by bringing it up first to explain away so they do not look too much into it and it's just kind of a weird thing for their daughter to bring up in the first place. I think she was 10 at the time and why would you discuss this with a 10 year old? A few more points about the interview. Uh, Richie gave a different version of the domestic violence incidents that got him kicked out of the military and lied about him being kicked out of the military that he got in the lightest punishment possible just lost a strip and some days in jail just lost a strip not got kicked out in the military just a loss of rank Richie also claimed to never having been inside her house Richie also had a scratch on his face that he said came from wrestling with his son the day before then after all this they told Richie Angela was dead he showed no emotion he did not ask how she died, nor was he concerned that a potential murderer was out there and did not ask questions about his children's safety. He gives his alibi that he came home after a shift ended at 11. He was a CNA at the hospital. Um, that Cynthia's daughter woke up twice in the night and his son woke up once. When questioned about his lack of emotion, he said it was because of working as a CNA. You have to put on a poker face and not show emotions. I say that is bullshit. I was a CNA for way more years than he was. He was a CNA for like maybe a year and a, two years and a half. I had to learn to not get attached to the residents because they died, but that did not detach me from people I knew outside work. I also worked in a nursing home. Richie worked in a hospital where people stayed short-term, not long-term like a nursing home. The day of the discovery of Angela's violent murder, they did process Richie's wife's red Honda. The car was remarkably clean, almost too clean. But there was a small reddish-brown stain on the inside passenger door, which was blood, and they tested it. 
Richie and Cynthia both claimed that Angela was never in that car, so with their statements, that means it should not be her blood. But, like, the one thing everybody noticed was how remarkably clean this car was. When you look at photos of the car, like, the front is all busted up, and I know, like, I don't know from my experience, most people that have, like, busted up cars, they don't really care how clean the inside is. Anyways, they begin to investigate Richie's existence, and boy, are they in for some surprises. You can't make this shit up. Richie was texting an old girlfriend and making plans to go to Vegas with her. Not only did they discover that, but when they investigated his job, they learned of Richie's romantic affairs. He was occasionally meeting up with one co-worker for casual sex, and at the same time, had a year-long affair with another and was actively trying to have a baby with her. According to this woman, he told her Cynthia knew of the affair, she did not, and they were looking to get an apartment together. This co-worker had been to Cynthia and Richie's apartment. Cynthia knew about her, but only in the context of their kids playing together. While Cynthia was working, and as soon as the kids started nappy, Richie and his co-worker would start having sex. Richie supposedly told Cynthia that his co-workers wanted to buy his sperm, you know, in case he knocked someone up, and that he was going to get an apartment with this co-worker for a business they were going to get into together. I believe there was no mention of what type of business. And on top of this, I'm sorry, and on top of his multiple affairs that are supported with texts on his phone, he spent an ungodly amount of time looking at porn on his phone. Richie's place of employment offered high praises for him, but a few weeks after the murder, they had no choice to let him, but to let him go because he got violent with an elderly patient, which he tried to explain as he was stressed from the whole Angela affair to Cynthia. We see a pattern. Everything is her fault, not his. Even his violent temper at work that got him fired was Angela's fault. All right. Then the DNA came back. The car that Angela was never in had her blood on the passenger side, and there was DNA found under Angela's fingernails that was a match to Richie's Y chromosome. She had not been around her son for four days and would have showered, washing away anything that could have come from him. At 3 p.m. on December 18th, they arrested Richie while he was working out. Richie took the, you have a right to remain silent to heart, and did not speak to the police and kept quiet for months. I'm going to end it here for this episode. This episode was not supposed to be this long, but I feel that so much of Richie's behaviors need to be told and explained to fully understand the narcissist that he is and to help people understand the effects of domestic violence. How he tried to control people's thoughts on Angela's was part of his power and control over Angela. This case is far from over, and I will release the second episode ASAP. Richie is losing control, and what he does to get out of his own doing is quite bizarre, and there are way more twists and turns in this case. What I have put in here is a summary. There's so much more of Richie's narcissistic behaviors that you can read in Wynn's book, 
Wilder Intentions, and I highly recommend that. And watching the Dateline episode, which is titled Perry Confidential. It is season 26, episode 51. I was able to watch it through Peacock. So before I go, I just would like to offer a few words on services for domestic violence. Sometimes it can be hard for survivors to reach out. They are either afraid or they don't know how or where to reach out. Also, many people don't know that you don't even need to be a victim. You can seek services to pass along that information to others. You can learn how to safety plan to pass that along to abuse survivors. There is a national domestic violence abuse hotline. That number is 1-800-799-7233. They can help you find your local domestic violence abuse center. Um, you can also text this national hotline at 88788. Just text START and that will start the conversation. That is text START to 88788. And they can help find local numbers for you. And remember, you don't have to be a victim yourself to reach out. You can get information for your friends, your family, and other people that you know. But I'm ending it here, and I will have the second part to this episode up within a few days. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this podcast.